0: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe any information within it as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained within is a recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities. The hosts and guests on the show may have positions in some of the companies discussed. Make sure to seek your own independent professional advice before making any investment decisions.
1: Trolling, trolling for ten vaggers. Trolling, trolling for ten vaggers. <laughs>
0: Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel.
1: And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for 10 Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term.
0: Our guest today is Adrian Bias. Adrian has over 20 years experience in the mining and resources industry and he's been involved in many listed and unlisted companies. Adrian's a non-executive director of Infinity Lithium and Fertiles Limited and the chairman of Galena Mining.
1: Thank you again for coming, Adrian. We appreciate it immensely. Do you want to give us a bit of a background, Adrian, to what started you in this illustrious career and path?
2: Certainly. I did geology at uh, university. That's about as simple as it goes, really. Uh West Australian born and bred. And when you sit down and you say, where does the money come from in your economy and in your state? Well, in Western Australia, it's it's mining and primary production. So it was always something which I was very familiar with. Uh there's a bit of a family history going back into the mining industry in the state. So very comfortable embarking upon it. Where I find myself now, and you mentioned the directorships, I suppose that's something else which we can work into because you've got to start off by actually working for someone. So like many people, I did my tertiary education, I did geology here at UWA, and then I went out and worked. So I was working in the gold industry, I was working in base metals in Western Australia, continued to do so uh, in the 1990s, really enjoyed it. Uh, Look, I absolutely have a passion for it. The thing is that the world sort of changed in the late 1990s and uh, mining was very much um, old economy. But we thought that it was going to change forever, if you believe the newspapers then. But in reality, it was just one more example of an economic cycle. And what had also caught my interest really wasn't just rocks, for rocks' sake, uh, geology per se, but because I was in the mining industry, it really was about the, the economics of it. So I also did an economics degree as well whilst I was working. So... Took a few years to do it part-time, but I had some understanding employers and spent a fair bit of time studying and also when I was down and fly and fly out, gives you that opportunity.
1: Adrian, I remember when we spoke a little while ago offline, off you mentioned how you, you're not like a lot of other geologists where you're obsessed with rocks. You, you really had an early indication that you weren't going to be a rock collector that you really wanted to. Was there a precise moment that you felt, you know what, this is really exciting, but I care about... You know, investing. You know, yeah. Starting, uh, you, did you trade stocks when you were younger? Did
2: what? Did it in- uh, Look, the first, you know, I didn't trade shares until I was a couple of years out of university, right? So it was a little bit harder then too. You know, you, there was no online trading per se. You had to have a stockbroker. Um, although God bless T plus five, um, you, you really could play a play a release on T plus five, but. Um, no, I, uh, I got involved with it because ultimately I've always had a passion for the financial side. Flirter, here's a dark secret. I did uh, work experience as an accountant um, in my year 10 or 15-year-old work experience. So I was always interested in the financial side of things, but the mining industry just had an excitement to it. And in Western Australia, it's just a key part of of your conscious thought. And what I liked about it was the fact that it was exciting—you could, you could build, you could create, or um, all, all the other altruistic things. You know, you're building wealth for the state, etc. So the geology, to me, the science was about finding value, not finding a mineral specimen. And I don't take anything away from people who are fascinated with gems and rocks, but that's just not me. So pretty quickly, I worked out in the in the field. That, that meant I was thinking more like a mine manager and engineer than I was like a typical geologist. And so I knew that, that my view of the world was uh, clearly going to be more suited for the, the corporate side of things. I took the opportunity to, as I said, do that economics degree as well, which I finished by 99. And guess what? That's just when the really the, the mining and resources industry hit a really, really low spot. Got worse and worse in 2000 and 2001 until myself and and my business partner at the time were made redundant from uh, a company we worked for as a base metals company here in Western Australia. And whilst he was just a fellow employee at the time, he became my business partner, such that uh, we went out, um, there were three of us at the time, and raised capital privately in 2002. Now, we didn't know it, but we knew that the cycles exist. But we raised capital at the bottom of the bottom. Like gold-bottomed in May of 2000, I think it was one, uh, sort of trundled along that level till about a year later. So we raised nearly a million dollars privately and went out and started pegging ground, taking options over existing ground. And that's probably something a lot of people before they even got married and had children probably kind of think that's, that's something they've got to leave to later in life.
1: Mm. How old were you at this time, (laughs) Ashen? How old were you at this time, and where did you get access to a million dollars, privately and collectively? Uh, Look,
2: i I was. That was the. I turned thirty that year. Um, So, where did we get access from? It. It was friends and family. It was people who trusted us and backed us. And got to give credit to a guy called uh, Tony Barton. Okay, Um, who came in and backed us once we'd raised half a million. He put in three hundred thousand dollars. Uh, to our small private company and really did take a a sort of a mentoring role in how we did it. And he saw a bit of, I suppose, excitement, um, just uh, desire, hunger. You know, we weren't weren't taking this out to pay ourselves good salaries. And I suppose that's what happens if you start young enough, you don't need uh, much money to keep kicking. And we turned out then to float the first company in 2003 on the stock exchange floated another one in 2004 and both of those went 10 baggers so he made uh, a very good return on us we learned the ropes probably earlier than we would have otherwise if we had have gone through the normal company business cycle and worked our way up to middle management so it was really fortuitous for us and we all think the same uh, myself it was Jonathan Downs and Richard Hill and we all had a a similar view that the the companies which were laying us off at that time were losing money making metal. Now, that's not sustainable. And, you know, a dot-com story at the time could raise money easily, but something which was going to actually run a long-life mining operation was going under. Time to get as much as you could. Leverage yourself the best way possible.
1: Yeah, terrific, Adrian. Look, it sounds like there's a common theme... You, you're trying to, whether it be fortuitously or not, is, is really back commodities in the doldrums in when they're on the gutter and when everyone's bearish. And, you know, obviously uh, you mentioned 10-baggers. That's exactly what this podcast is see, seeks out to do is really try to give uh, or identify early 10-baggers and, and help people along the journey. So these um, these 10-baggers, are these any names that we people know? or Were they private or they were listed?
2: No, they were all ASX listed. So we listed Siberia Mining in 2003. um. That ended up uh, starting production. Uh, got sold to Monarch Gold in a takeover, so we're happy with that. Uh, we floated Molly Mines in two thousand and four. Uh, that went. That actually made it to seven dollars for a twenty cent float. That one was pretty good. Um, that uh, that was molybdenum in Western Australia as well. And then we ended up splitting uh, the partnership from three down to two, and continued along. Uh, and I still share a board with Jonathan Downs right now, at uh, Galena Mining as well. So we've had a very long and, and fruitful uh, relationship there, mm. basically trading off each other's strengths and weaknesses and, and going forward. And, and I uh, watch this space for the next 10-bagger, which comes out of uh, our stable. So there we go, Molly, my, sorry, uh, Galena.
1: That's, yes. uh Adrian, let's talk about that because you've mentioned an interesting pivot and I uh, I kind of feel a bit silly because I, I didn't take any Galena mining, and uh, I do remember the story I've heard you you telling uh, people a few times about a fifty dollar note on the ground or something like that. Perhaps you can really overview uh, Galena because that is a that is a very classic example of a ten bagger because I think that was it was a twenty cent IPO that was a five for one consolidation. So
2: yeah, went- correct. We'd, it was a twenty cent float. We did a five for one split. It's trading today at thirty seven or thirty eight cents. Uh, it's, it's off a little bit in the last uh, few weeks, but it went over forty. Therefore, it went over two bucks, which is a ten bagger. Um, that hasn't even been listed for two years yet. So, well where, where, Where's the story there? Okay, the story is, Time uh, first looked at this project in two thousand and seven, and engaged uh, a consulting firm here in Perth to do a fatal floor review of it. It was a fairly middling report. Not that special. It had just emerged into a listed company at the time. And this is a project which had discovered quite a while earlier. And we didn't get it. The Chinese beat us to it. Let's just be honest. The Chinese were buying a lot of stuff 2008, the next several years. And they paid a lot of money for it, um, but not as much as it's worth right now. So there we go. So um, we just had to wait. And it came out the other end. And as a lot of Chinese state-owned enterprises do, When they've made decisions and they tend to invest in lots of different things in lots of different places, they end up getting swallowed up by a larger state-owned enterprise and uh, therefore there's rationalisation which is done at an arbitrary level, not at a, in my opinion, at a true value level. And so decisions were made for China uh, HNC to, to leave Australia. They sold basically a billion dollars worth of acquisitions and probably didn't get more than $40 million for them, maybe $50 million tops. Some of those were never worth the money which was spent, in my genuine opinion. Um, but Abra was one that was was very cheap. And look, I, I, There's two ways of looking at it. One is just because you don't pay a lot of money for something doesn't mean it's not worth something. And Abra was one of those. So we took that to the market in... 2017, right? And we took it as an IPO, clean skin, and 100% owned. We put a really low enterprise value on it because the market hadn't really, in our opinion, fully recovered from 2015-2016. We're well represented equity-wise, but the company floated with a market cap of about eleven and a half million dollars, six million dollars cash. So an enterprise value of five and a half. Someone said that the the project can't be that good then, if you didn't pay um, a lot of money for it. Why should I pay now that it's worth 30 or $40 million? And why should I pay more? It's the same thing. It's, well, if you pick a $50 note up for the ground, just because you put no effort into picking it up doesn't mean it's not worth $50. And there's a a sort of perception, and this is one thing that might go across to some of your listeners, that, that something's worth what somebody else is prepared to pay is absolutely true. But something is not necessarily worth no more than what somebody paid for it. And, you know, we all try to do this. We try to buy a stock, don't we, on the, on the screen that we think is going to go up in value. So we believe that there is potential there. And I was really quite taken aback by some of the, the sentiment surrounding assets that I've been involved with that people have a, a, a set valuation of them. And you'd think the people that were the most informed, and now I'm talking about industry participants, would be the people who would be least susceptible to that. But they turn out to be probably the most susceptible to it, that they have a fixed view of something because BHP sold it or Western Mining sold it or somebody sold it and that's it. It's done. End of story. That's its value and it was done. So Galena turned out to be one of those where we managed to be part of the acquisition at the bottom of the last resources slump. Now nobody really knew, but the start of 2016, when this transaction started, was the bottom. South 32 was worth 80 odd cents. I think it's worth three bucks 50 as we have this conversation. So you had nobody paying for anything and this had a million dollars a year worth of tenement expenditure on it. And we, we acquired it. Took over a year to clean it up and we can talk about Jork later on, get it to listing, work through the ASX, the ASIC, make it happen, finalize share transfers with Chinese, that's an interesting one, Um, get everything sorted, take it forward to market. So by the time we actually got to market, we were about a year and a half past the bottom of that downward part of the resource cycle of what, say 2012 onwards, like it just kept on falling, maybe about four years. Then we find ourselves in a completely different mindset, which people were becoming optimistic and coming back up the other side and and looking to invest and to become leveraged and part of these things. But they still said, well, it's only worth what you paid for it because we took it to market then at effectively the same price that that had been crystallized a year and a half earlier. And that just absolutely struck me. And so some people chose not to participate for that reason. And, And everyone's got their own reasons i I don't buy everything which comes in front of me i I can't nobody can buy everything but it it was just a really bizarre thing and so i'm reinforced in my own beliefs and my own opinions more than ever for that reason
0: that's fascinating adrian and we might come to some of the jork stuff a little bit later on was there anything that we could discuss there sort of galena specific i guess where you could see some of the the value and the potential there that was just being ignored by the market i suppose less than a valuation point of view but just what was what struck your eyes to it being a worthwhile project back in 2000? Oh,
2: grade, uh, grade, and the fact that it was viewed as a um, I'm trying to think of the right word here without being disparaging to myself or to other people out of you know poor vocabulary. Um, quite simply, there was a sort of a mythology about the project that it was deep and low grade, and in fact, mythology is probably the best word to use here. And very few people had ever worked on the project. It was one of those amazing things. I don't know how many people have worked in Kalgoorlie. I don't know how many people have worked in the iron ore. I don't know how many people have worked in the Hunter Valley for coal. You know, it's just, you've got thousands of people. You've got cities full of people who have lived in these places over the years, right? But very few people had ever worked on the Abra project, okay, because it was very remote and it had been explored in short bursts and that was it, okay? Okay. So, this sort of opinion uh, existed amongst people that it was deep and low grade. Now, why was it deep and low grade? Well, because someone else had said it was deep and low grade and somebody else, so you actually try to find the source of where it was and no one actually say no one had worked on it, no one had been there. But it turns out that when this was discovered, something which was 250 metres deep was deep. You know, there were... There was very few things in Western Australia operating even at 500 meters at that stage, you know, and these were long-lived, deep, high-grade gold operations. There's stuff out of you know Cobar now, which is a kilometer deep. You know, that's it's nothing. There's there's sons of Gawler and these things. So, what was viewed as deep 20 years ago, 30 years ago, really now, um, was relative to the time deep. Okay, so that was the first misnomer out of the way. The second one was low grade. And it was really interesting because if you look at a tree, you've got a trunk and you've got leaves. If you look at and you try to find something which is dense, and let's just use the analogy that the grade is the dense part, right? If you take a handful of leaves, you're going to say, this isn't very dense, it's low grade. And as a whole, when you look at the tree from the other side of the park, you think, well, it's not very dense. You know, It takes up a lot of volume, but it's not dense. If you just strip away everything and say, well, you know what, guys, there might be 120 million tonnes of mineralization here. Wonderful. Huge, huge mineral deposit. And I'm using these numbers because they're the actual numbers. But if you take all that 120 million tons, you've only got a grade of, say, 4%. It doesn't cut it in an underground operation. You've got to get probably close to double that. But if you just look at the trunk and the bow, and you say, you know what? I'm going to forego everything else, and I'm going to get in and take that out. You might find that all of a sudden, you've got 20 million tons at 10%. And bingo, you've got a highly profitable mine. So people have been looking at this, trying to process like four or five million tons of ore, even six million tons of ore a year. The capital cost of that was outrageous, but that didn't matter pre-GFC. It was just one of those things. We looked at it and we said, you know what, we're going to do about a million tons a year. We're going to keep it tight, keep it high grade, keep it small and do it that way. And it worked. So it was just a way of looking at things. And so... That mythology about being deep and low grade meant that we had less competition. And I don't mind that because if we had fully informed competitors out there, we would not have got it. Somebody else with a greater balance sheet and cash flow would have got it. That's, that's just the way it works.
1: Adrian, can, uh, I think, sorry, just to jump in, I think there's something interesting in what you've said, but perhaps if you've just come in and listened to this about grade and you know, the old classic grade is king and, and high depth, can you just take us through maybe just a bit of an overview on, on what you would look for in terms of, you know, uh, grade and strip ratios and, and just sort of dumb it down for some of those listeners that might not be familiar with just the general economics of, of mining? Oh,
2: certainly. Um, it, it, I can use some specific examples to make it more relevant rather than trying to be caveating every second word I say. Ultimately, I'll look at it this way. What's, what's the potential for this deposit? And I'm, I'm looking at something which has had a few drill holes into it, okay? You know, we're not talking about conceptual exploration. Something's got some drill holes in it, but there's no mine on it uh, at this stage. There's no mine plan. Um, there's no, uh, how shall I say, economic model around it which gives someone just an NPV number, okay? Um, strip that away. I say, okay, I look at look at the volume, and I look at the size, and I look at the grade. So I want to appreciate, as a public company, because... I'm sure your listeners are like me. The majority of my investments are in listed companies. I want to see something which has the potential to justify being run and operated in a public company. And that means you need a certain size and a certain grade, okay? Let's just use open pit mining. I'm going to dig stuff up for about $2.50 a tonne, okay? And if I have a normal ore body in Western Australia for, say, gold, I'm going to have to move probably about anywhere between five and 10 tons of waste for every one ton of ore. So that's my strip ratio. What's my stripping ratio? It's to strip away the ore body. How many tons of waste do I have to move? So let's use the sum 10 because you know, it makes my mathematics easier. So I'm going to move 10 times two bucks, 50. I'm going to move $25 worth of waste for one ton of ore And that ton of ore. I'm going to put through my plant and it's probably going to cost, we'll call it 20 bucks plus or minus to treat a ton of hard rock gold-bearing ore in a plant in Western Australia. And then I'm going to recover a certain amount. So, you know, you can do the sums pretty easily. So, therefore, it's cost me just under $45 to get that ton and see what's at the back end of it, right? And if it only had one gram in it, one gram of gold right now is worth about $55 Australian. So I made $10, you know. Fair enough. So for me to make a million dollars, then or ten million dollars, I've got to move a million tons to make ten million. Bucks. So you you see the sort of scale really quickly, and the biggest single variable here is not the cost of mining, it is not the cost of treatment, and believe it or not, it's actually not really the strip ratio um, within a certain realistic basis here. It's the grade by having two grams instead of one gram. I've made $55 free cash plus the $10 I made on the first gram. I've made six times my money by just increasing my grade by one times. You know, double the grade, but make six times more money. That's why the grade is king here. And that's that sort of inflection point. And it's great for looking at leverage that a whole lot of projects don't quite work at a certain price regime for the commodity but they're really well leveraged. They've got size, they've got scale, they've got everything we need to do. And then all of a sudden they get to a really nice sweet spot where the price moves and everybody thinks they can make a whole lot of money, right? So they rush out there, they start a mine. But sometimes it doesn't quite work because you know what? Typically your cost of fuel has gone up, your cost of labour has gone up. When metal prices go up over time, typically so does the rest of your input costs. So, the best and the simplest and honest thing is just be in a situation where you've got a decent grade. So, my analogy before about the strip ratio, that was assuming that all the grade was the same. But you might find that your average of one gram was made up of four tons at, you know, two grams and, and six tons of whatever the residual is there 0.25 grams or whatever it is averages out 10 tons at one gram. So just leave the really low-grade stuff behind and just chase the high-grade. And you know what? On those sums that it gave you, that would make a tidy little profit. The strip ratio goes up a bit. doesn't matter within reason, but you're making money. And that's how we looked at this ore body was we were going to leave. We were prepared to leave behind more than half of the ore body in order to take out what was going to make maximum profit. So that's been rewarded by the market very well. It's been rewarded now by our joint venture partners who paid a considerable amount of money to, to buy a minority um, part of the project. And really, I suppose I could go over and over the same point again. It's just, what do you leave behind to maximise the grade? That that, that can mean that you look at a new all-body, sorry, the same all-body in a new way.
0: I think it's a really good example of something that might have just been overlooked by people or there's assumptions made, like you mentioned, about depth being a problem or the, you know, the over the um yeah the strip ratio and some of those things that most people might just write off but just looking into it a bit further gives you a whole different
2: perspective which is really useful yeah look, look it is and that's that's skills which um you can pick up reasonably well just by paying a bit of attention you know understanding what industry standards are for mining costs stripping processing recoveries things like that you know you You put a little bit of effort in, you can actually learn a whole lot. And I think to a lot of investors who aren't mining industry specialists, it might not help them to get the best one, but it definitely will help them getting stuck with bad ones, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, Adrian, just very quickly, if someone was listening to this and just gone, you know, Adrian's got a lot of expertise because he's done a geology degree. Where does somebody who is just looking at ASX announcement or pick up on that? that information
2: to be able to build a case? you the best way? Go to some quarterly reports or some annual reports of operating companies. Look at tons, first off, the things which will cost you absolutely nothing, okay? Look at some successful companies, okay, and there's, there's plenty of them out there, and look at their financial reporting, half yearly or annual reporting, okay? And that'll tell you tons moved, metal produced. You can work it out. You know, cost, gross profit, net profit after royalties, etc. So just look at what good projects are. Okay, this could be spotted coal down at Western Areas. Um, it could be Sandfires, De things like that. Okay, look at a look at a good project, and then look at a project which isn't working so well. Um, I think that rather than me naming those ones, I'd, I'd probably let people use Hot Copper to find some of those. But uh, quite simply, look at one which isn't working and apply the same things. Look at what their mining costs are. And I bet you, you know what, their mining costs are probably going to be fairly similar. Okay. So then just back calculate where that grade inflection point is and what's working and what's not. And that's the first point. First point of call would be to look at some public company information out there. It's all readily available before you start spending any money and doing any courses, uh, things like that. Um, Second, ask questions, find people. In this country, there's always someone who knows something about the mining industry because they're, they're related to it in some way. You know, there's a huge wealth of information out there.
1: Thank you for that information, Adrian. I think what you've done is given investors at least a, lot, a couple of clues about sort of where to go, and I think looking at the half-year and full-year accounts is probably a good start. Um, perhaps there's a great natural segue now to just sort of explaining um, what the JORC code is listeners, and and then I guess we can sort of talk about some of those differences between the JORC code of 2004 and 2012.
2: Yeah, certainly. Look, um, the Joint or Reserves and Reporting Committee, JORC, is an industry-created organisation which has been set up to provide a reporting framework to dovetail into the securities, we'll call it stock exchange and uh, regulatory ASIC um, systems. Every country basically needs one. Um, you might have heard of the 43101 out of Canada, for example. So what you ever whatever you call it doesn't really matter. What it is, it's something which is designed. And once you understand what its its core reason to be, is it, it all makes a lot of sense and we don't get hung up about nuances. It's designed to make information transparent, available and in a standardised format which allows people to in- access it and apply their own interpretations. What it also does is it, to use the words of Don Chip from the Democrats many, many years ago, and I'm not extolling any sort of political sort of thing, is to keep the bars is honest. So if you have a prescriptive, and the Jork Code is quite prescriptive now in 2012, much more so than Jork 2004, and that's probably the biggest difference, is that it's become very detailed in an if-not-why-not mentality. You've got to put a huge amount of information down when you're doing anything in the resource industry now. By the way, unless you're BHP and Rio, they don't actually have to play the game. It's different horses for different courses, shall we say.
1: Why is that? Just quickly, Adrian.
2: Uh, They're too big to care. So does that mean they don't publish their um,
0: resources in the same... They don't um, state them in the same way? They don't claim to have them?
2: They they have got a leave pass from every regulatory authority to not do what they like. But um, they are a bit of a... I'm not saying law unto themselves, and I'm not going to say that they are arrogant or flaunting it, but they basically said, we're just not interested. We don't run around because they operate internationally and they would probably find it almost impossible to abide by every regulatory framework required under every single part of it. They're big enough, they've been operating and paying dividends for long enough, that, and they they will claim that their reporting is good enough, unless you're an analyst perhaps trying to dig under some of their stuff, um, that they don't need to do it because the absence of them living by the code does not detrimentally affect anyone's ability, they believe, and they have successfully argued, to make a rational investment decision. And you know what? There's, there's probably some credence to that. But uh, It just goes to show that it's not some be-all and end-all. You know, you can't have a speed limit for one group of people on the, on the freeway um, based on size and wealth and a different speed limit for different people, but in the ASX, you can. So that aside... What what it's actually done is it's made it harder, but not impossible for people to be crooks. No law will ever stop people being crooks. But what Jorg 2012 has done over, say, 2004, is it's, I suppose, in summary, added a lot of paperwork. You can easily see a three-page ASX announcement now from a junior exploration company which could have 15 pages behind it of terminology, the example, uh, the kind of drilling which was done, the kind of sampling which was done, the elements which were assayed for, those which weren't assayed for, why weren't they assayed for, all of this sort of, if not, why not questioning I was discussing before uh, mentality so that you remove the ability for people, I should say, to selectively report information so that's, that's probably the, the single biggest, to me, improvement of Jork 2012 over 2004. And these years are just clearly the, the years in which they decided on that particular variant of the code. So that biggest change was it stopped people being a little bit selective on what they could put in. So that's a positive, okay, um, because we all know the person who drills a really good hole but forgets to tell the market that there was actually one existing five meters away which told them that information anyway, you know? So that sort of stuff, I'm not saying it was rife, but used to happen a bit more than people give it credit to a while ago. And that's sort of been caught. But, you know, a negative for, say, 2012 over 2004 is you now can publish a scoping study, but... Unless you have indicated level resources, and these aren't easy to get, either, gentlemen. Um, I'll happy to go into detail on that later on, but just take my word for it. You do a scoping study on inferred resources. You can't publish cash flows. So you can make a resource. You say, I've got 50,000 ounces, two grams. I've done a study, got an engineering group to come in here. We can dig up 30,000 of those ounces, and we can send it down the road to a toll treatment plant. We can make money. That's literally what you can say on the ASX now. You can't actually say how much money you're going to make if it's inferred because you can't apply
1: cash flow to inferred. Now, can you just walk the investors through the difference in those classifications on inferred, indicated and measured?
2: Certainly. Um, Inferred means that there is geological continuity uh, in in the shape that you've attached to the data points from drilling, for example. So drill 10 holes, let's say half of them have got some gold in it, And we can draw a shape, a 3D shape, which joins them together, okay? We have to show that there's geological continuity, that there's a reasonable chance of it being extracted and profitably so. And there we go. You know, you've got an inferred resource, but you really don't have a high level of confidence. In fact, you've got quite a low level of confidence of it. An indicated resource means that you've got a substantially higher level of confidence that you have... Strong certainty on the geological continuity between those drill intercept points. You've got a, a strong understanding and belief of the grade distribution within those points, but it's not as high as it could be, which is measured. Which is, look, you know, no one's ever one hundred percent certain, but it's as good as you're going to get um, in the natural sciences world. So you start off with inferred. You do a bit of work. You get to indicated. You do a bit more work. You get to measured. The word reserve here comes into it that you can have a reserve on a measured resource and you have a reserve indicator resource. And what a reserve means is that a mining engineer and a raft of other um, specialists have put together a study which has a high level of confidence, we're talking, you know, plus or minus 15%, for example, that you can successfully... Mine, treat, and make a profit on this, right? So the word reserve is one which absolutely gets alarm bells flashing down at the ASX. If you use that word reserve, then you've really got to have a whole lot of stuff backing it up under 2012 now because they're really knocking back people from doing it. So so much so that they've even stopped scoping studies being used publishing cash flows because they felt that it was misleading. So... The irony is the junior... Set. And so all of these terminologies defined oh, sorry, in the, in the JORC yeah, code absolutely. itself, is it? Yep, absolutely. So you can the JORC code can be downloaded. You can go online. And I'd, I'd recommend anybody who wanted to get a handle on this to do so. It's, uh, it's not voluminous, um, not easy to read, but it can be read, okay, for a, a non-professional sort of person. And it does, does break it down into relatively simple terms. So let's go back to what the inferred resources mean now. It means I can tell people I've got an accumulation of metal. But if I do a study to show that there's basis for it, and this is what the capital markets are here for, and this is where I think they've kind of got it slightly wrong. You can't then go to the capital markets and say, look, at a low level of confidence, I think this thing makes money. Can you give me some more money? I'll issue some shares. We're going to go and drill some more holes, do some more studies, and we might get indicated or measured resources. And on the back of that, we might do another study, a feasibility study, and make a reserve. That was always the way it worked. There was higher risk and higher return the earlier in any venture you got into, okay? Whereas now, it's this point where at a scoping study level, unless you've got the majority of it is indicated, which is not easy to do at early stages, all you can say is that it's positive and we intend to do further work. That doesn't really get investors salivating, so we've kind of made a bit of a bit of a rod for our own back there in the resources sector. I think in uh, in being able to allow risk capital to, to work efficiently, I think we might have gone a bit too far there.
1: Mm, that's interesting, Agent. So what it sounds like is the two thousand and twelve code gives you a lot more confidence to convert inferred to indicated to measured, and it's a lot harder, or it's been it's made been made harder for resources that might have shown high inferred to in the old code to actually convert that. So there's a greater degree of confidence. Is that correct?
2: Well, look, um, I suppose what I was trying to do is that if you can't tell a good story early, Sam, to people, then you find it harder to attract capital going forward. And what Jork 2012 has done is it's made it harder to tell the story early. Now. By the time it gets uh, down the track, as I said, I actually don't mind the work that Jork 2012 makes you do now. I gave that example of might be five pages of, of text at the back in the appendices for every one page in the announcement. That's the price of doing business. That's, that's one of the, the ways in which we can work with regulata- regulators to make our industry work. But I still think that the, the whole basis of the Australian Stock Exchange in alloc- allowing risk capital to be allocated is that you've got this framework and all this prescriptive information but if I can't actually say does it make one dollar or does it make a million dollars like you know where, where are we at and it's and then you can't have selective briefings or other things like that now so someone can't ring you up and you say look you know what does that actually make you know I want to buy some shares but I just want to know what you're talking what's the scale of quantum you can't say anything so it
1: might be being a little bit overprotective. Just so we're clear, because of the continuous disclosure, uh, we were speaking with another guest about this very thing, is there's there's got to be an ease of information, a natural access, a sharing of information so that someone doesn't have an unfair advantage. But that actually prevents serious analysts from getting access and doing more work because the information is not readily available. Is that fair? Uh,
2: look, um that's potential, absolutely. I wouldn't disagree with that person at all. The counter side for that would be that the regulators would say that under Jork 2012, we've actually made them put more information out in the public space, okay? So they would say that the companies now by default have a harder you know, amount of paperwork. They've got to put more information out. What I think made a really good analyst in the past wasn't just someone who actually had worked in the industry. But it was someone who could actually ask the right questions. They could look at information, they could pick up the phone and they could try to to work out what was missing, what wasn't said or look at it a different way, okay? That's very hard to do now for the companies because of what you just said, the continuous disclosure, assumes everything's out there. The moment somebody picks up the phone who's interested in the securities, who asks you a question and you say something which may or may not be material but it is presented or framed in a different way, Here's a question for you. Is that a closed briefing? You know, I, it's, it's not, a, not an easy line to tread anymore. I, I wouldn't actually like to, to be an analyst in some ways.
1: Mm. Adrian, what I'm looking for is sort of an example of, of potentially a mine or a resource that, that, wouldn't have, that might have been there pre-2004 that, 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 that now couldn't be there in 2012. And I guess I'll, th- I'll ask you another question because it was put to, to it to me. As um, an example of, of the Lake Row asset and, and why there was such a, a huge disparity, uh, a disparity a huge difference between what was the market was expecting in resources versus what actually came out and I wonder if there's anything to say about the Jork code or is that something about the difference between the spacing and the drill holes as, as one other analyst yeah would. look um
2: this this ultimately does come down I think in that particular example and some other stuff as well to what the Jork code allows people to actually do, and don't forget, each one of these typically has an independent contractor as an independent technical expert who comes in, who's going to do what they think is best, right? Not not every company has the resources to have an internal staff of engineers and resource geologists and everybody else, right? So what does the jaw code do? It creates conservatism by its very nature. That's what it's actually designed to do. If you're not sure of something, say nothing, okay? Um, you used to be able to potentially, in the past, uh, I like my analogies, lead a horse to water, okay? You can't even do that anymore. So some people might look at drill intercepts. Word gets around pretty quick as to whether it's got size or scale. People can plot the information out on a piece of paper. They can do some rough volumes. All that sort of stuff can happen, but then when the actual resource comes out, if the consultant being used has applied more conservative uh, assessment of it, um, and that may be for a variety of reasons, um, it may be because metallurgy hasn't been uh, properly uh, examined yet. It might be because the mining method um, being used might only uh, do open pits, and they haven't done any studies on underground. For example. So you might find that, for a particular reason, the resource consultant is prepared to make a public statement, which could be—I'm just throwing numbers in here—it might be half of what the total accumulated metal was. And as a result, the market might see that headline number, not bother to dig down or to realise what's actually happened, and absolutely slay the company. You know, for example. And I'll give you how this works. You might find that you can economically process one gram per tonne gold in an open pit, okay? And given the strip ratios and the hardness of the rock, that open pit might go down 100 metres, okay? Then you've got mineralization which extends down below that. But let's say that you're a company and you've done some drilling and you've got the drill spacing good enough for open pit mining, but you haven't got it good enough for underground. Yet, you've got great intercepts going down 500 metres. Jorg 2004, effectively, there was a lot more tolerant in putting all of that mineralization into some form. You know, you'd have different cutoffs at different levels, but you wouldn't have to go into a lot more detail about the mining method selected and doing cost analysis of it. 2012 was just a bit harder. So... Some companies just don't have the ability to get that information to the consultant fast enough because they haven't done it. They don't have the resources, perhaps, at that moment. And as such, you might end up quoting the top 100 metres, which goes into the open pit, for example. The market might see that the thing goes down 500 metres, but doesn't quite understand why the resource is so small. You know, these are things which, you know, if people bother to read and go all the way through, they might catch. But... We're often talking about first impressions and things like that, which would damage companies and the perception of companies.
0: I Some really good examples of places to go digging for people themselves, just to have a little bit more of a read and deep dive into the information that's out there by the sound of it.
2: It, Look, it it really is. There's just too much information. So what you've got to do is is hone in. Work on what commodity you want. Work in uh, what region you want. Work in what level of company um, you want to work in. Things like that because... Look, you know, I I doubt anybody could process what's out there. That's that's what we, you know, continually told now The why we need big data, because there's too much. So for an individual who's trying to get an advantage for trading, I would say they'd have to start looking at these things in a way which they don't get swamped trying to examine everything and figure out what they actually want to try and do.
0: Thanks, Adrian. Would you be able to give us some insight into the different um, drilling methods? Because that, I guess, comes down to some of the way that resources are estimated and determined. And uh, I guess just going back to basics, I suppose, and the, the different drilling um, techniques and what the maybe cost and practical implications of th- those are?
2: Oh, look, certainly. Um, you know, this is one thing that Australia is actually a world leader in, ter- in drilling technology. We're we've, you know, pretty good at what we do in some of these things, and I'll go through it. But essentially, got two ways of drilling a hole first off what are you actually doing when you're drilling a hole you are trying to get a sample from below ground at a point in space that you have high confidence in so you need to know what angle the hole is going at what orientation the hole is going at whether the hole is bending underground or not etc okay and the whole reason for it is so you're going to get selective point data all the way down that drill hole and let's just so we're only going to do assays here. No geophysics. Okay. We're going to then get these samples assayed. And we're going to find out what's in them. You've got two ways of drilling that hole. You're either physically grinding and removing solid pieces of rock. We'll call this diamond drilling, and we'll go through that in a second. Or you're basically using air, and you're smashing the rock into small pieces, and you are then forcing it to the surface, by high pressure air, okay? So that's air core drilling, RAB drilling, um, or RC drilling, okay? So we'll go through the air drilling first. And this is this is where I said that we're a, we're a real leader in this. Part of the reason is, is because historically, drilling used to be diamond drilling. And diamond drilling is like getting a pipe. Just imagine a piece of PVC that you see someone uh, putting a bit of guttering off the side of, of your house, okay? So a round piece of PVC. Not that we use plastic, but at the end of that, there's an impregnation like a donut at the end of it, which is impregnated with small pieces of industrial diamond. It's incredibly hard. And that is then turned at a constant rate of knots. And there's hydraulic pressure, which pushes it down into the ground. Water is lubricated to, to keep it cool and to keep it cutting. And you physically will drill a hole in the ground and take up the solid drill core, like a big cylinder broken into pieces from inside of that, that pipe that went down, okay, the drill tube. That's amazing because that is that is a representation of the surface of what was 50 or 100 or 1,000 meters below ground. And you can understand the orientation that was in exactly where it was below ground. So it's amazing stuff, but it's quite expensive. And it's relatively slow. So you might be spending in Western Australia a meter per meter to to drill that bit of diamond core. But that's really high quality information, okay? Allows you to do metallurgical test work, structural, geotech, everything. But because of the cost and the time that it takes, and you might in a 12 hour shift get 50 meters, okay? If you want to drill out a big project, you either get a lot of rigs and have a lot of money, or you had to figure out a way which was faster. And again, Australia is interesting like this because we're such an old continent. We've had a lot of weathering at the surface. So we don't have a lot of fresh rock sitting at the surface in the middle of the bush, right? You've got a a layer on top which is weathered. That's why the red colour is there because that's the iron left over after everything else has been washed away. And so what gets through that really beautifully and really well is using what's called reverse circulation. So you'll have that same pipe, that I had before in my analogy, we'll say it's a 100 mil piece of PVC drain pipe because it's steel. Then inside that you're gonna put something which might be say, I don't know, 40 millimetres diameter inside. And at the end of it, you've got a hammer which operates with air pressure. And that hammer just keeps going bang, 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 bang. It's a round hammer with holes at the end. So what you do is you will force the air down one part of that tube, and then you'll move the hammer at the end, which will smash the rock into small pieces. We're talking no more than maybe ten millimeters by ten millimeter sort of pieces, and then you will extract that up in the other part of the tube, the inner tube, okay so the air goes down one side, smashes the rock at the face, and then it comes up the inner tube. and at the surface, you then take a bag. Every meter you fill that bag full of material and you put it aside. You lose all of that that really high value geotechnical uh, information or structural information because you don't know. You're never going to pull these pieces back together again. Right? Not, it's, it's not possible. But you've got a big sample from that same particular meter. But that might have cost you $50 to drill that meter. And you might do 250 meters a day. So you can see that you do a trade-off between the quality of the information you get out versus the cost and the time. Now, both of these you'll take an assay from, right? A metre of drill core might weigh seven kilos. You cut in half, it weighs three and a half. You crunch it all up, you send it down to the lab. Your one metre of uh, RC probably weighs about 35 kilos. So you can see you've got a statistically a much bigger support area as well when you're talking about gold at one gram per tonne. It's one part per million, okay? So, you kind of want the biggest sample. So, RC drilling is really good in Western Australia for being fast, cheap, and getting good representative sample of lower-grade material, okay? And diamond drilling is really good when you're trying to work out the stress regimes underground because you can see how the rock actually behaves. The Canadians, for example, and I, I touched upon this once before, they just don't do RC, really, because... Everything's effectively fresh there. It's cold. They drill in winter time, etc. RC rigs aren't air portable. They use a lot of fuel, so it's not good unless you can drive a lot of fuel to them. So the Canadians use diamond rigs, for example. In the late 1990s, the Canadian company Lion Ore in Western Australia was in joint venture with Dalrymple Resources over the Thunderbox discovery. Uh, Andy Miller was the geologist on the side of that. About 98 air Corps rig. Okay, so they roll in. Guess what they do? They drill a multitude of RC drill holes. This was just after the Briex scandal of Busang. The Canadians didn't believe it. They sent people down here, did a huge amount of work just to try and see if RC drilling was useful and representative compared to diamond drilling. Huge amount of work. They are trying to find a reason not to believe it. In the end, they did. So different horses for different courses. You, know, you, you can't use... I see drilling effectively if it's really wet because it smears this sample that I talked about. These all this chips and and fine particles become mud. It it doesn't work. But it's heaps cheaper and heaps faster. So that's really how you'll drill out a deposit with with one of those two. Um, But in the end, you'll always use some portion of diamond for those things I talked about before, metallurgy and geotech. But RC is a really effective tool.
0: Thanks so much, Adrian. That's a really good summary, I think, of um, some techniques which people probably see referenced a lot in announcements from companies but maybe don't have the best understanding of how they work in practice.
1: The one thing if we can take away just wrapping up is that really try and find your own niche and your own set of expertise and back in stories that maybe people aren't paying attention to. That's really how you find your your own 10 baggers. Oh, mate, look,
2: absolutely. Nobody, Nobody gives them to you for free.
1: So, look, Agent. thanks again for your time. We look forward to having you possibly down the line. We really appreciate it. No worries, mate.
0: Cheers, fellas. Thank you. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from TwinMusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about
1: your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.